This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance. Welcome back, everyone. Episode 24, we're regrouped here at Northwestern again with our team, and I'm really excited to introduce some new faces, some long-term, and then new discussions as always. So I'm going to turn it over to Lauren just to say hey first. Hi, everyone. Glad to be back. We've got a really exciting case, and I'm very excited to have my co-lead join us today. So I'll have him introduce himself. Hey, everybody. It's great to be on. My name is Daniel. I'm one of the medical students here at Northwestern. Really excited to be part of this. It's going to be a great time. I think we're all going to learn a lot together. We have some really incredible people here with us, and I just want to turn the mic over and give them a chance to introduce themselves as well. Well, well, first, it's a little bit of a special episode. I was in Morning Report a couple weeks ago and originally heard this case, and sitting next to me was the Northwestern Program Director, Dr. Didwani, and he's like, hey, this would be a pretty good case for your podcast. Why don't we do it? So here we are a couple of weeks later, and sitting here with us at the table is Dr. Didwania. So why don't you say hey to our listeners? Hey, my name is Ashish Didwania. I'm the residency director at Northwestern. 10 years into my residency director, 20 years in Northwestern, and very excited to be here at Northern Oriented. <laughs> we are excited to have you. Welcome. And then sitting in the hot seat today are our two student discussants. I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Ryan. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm from Libertyville, Illinois, northern suburb of Chicago, and I'm going to IM. I'll be applying this year. Thanks, Ryan. Hi, everybody. My name's Osama. I originally grew up in Pakistan, spent some time in Ohio and Florida, currently live in Chicago. Excited to be here. Yeah. All right. Quick thing for the table. Most fun thing you did this summer. We'll start with you, Osama. Most fun thing I did this summer. I went to Madeira, which is an island off the coast of Portugal. Did a couple of cool hiking trails there. Flew a drone for the first time. It was really fun. <laughs> well, you got me top for sure. <laughs> you definitely moved a lot more than me, but I built a PC this summer, so I was just kind of, you know, getting back to my engineering roots and tinkering, just tinkering back, using my hands a little bit. Cool and impressive. Very cool. Got anything, Dr. Dwayne? Oh, I got all sorts of stuff. You guys ready for this? I've got twin girls, and I bought a slip and slide and water balloon. And we had a slip and slide water balloon fight. Very memorable <laughs> on a Saturday in the summer. Who tied all the water balloons? Oh, you can buy them slick now. You put a hose on it, and they all they blow up and pull them off. Seen that. It's cheating. <laughs> <laughs> so I am from Detroit. I love motor vehicles, love motorsports. So over the summer, I went to the sand dunes near Michigan. Me and some, some friends, we went up on those sand dunes with these big dune buggies and just had some, wow. some, some good times. Yeah, it was awesome. Very cool. Yeah, and for me, I'd say having having people visit. I just actually had my mom come and visit me from Michigan, and that was really nice. And just enjoying the weather, walking along the lake has been really great. For me, I have a little child at home now. When I have some time, I'm into cocktails. We try to bring him to cocktail bars, so it's kind of funny because obviously he can't enjoy them, but we enjoy <laughs> taking pictures of him pretending to enjoy them. So that's become our like thing to do. I remember that phase. I did that too. <laughs> <laughs> Felt like a rebel, a kid at a bar. <laughs> I forget where it, it was. Billy Sunday in like Logan Square. They had this cocktail that was served in a little like one of the airplane cereal boxes. That was very fitting. That <laughs> cereal box. So nice. All right, let's get started with this case. Daniel, why don't you kick us off? All right. So this is a 59-year-old man with a past medical history of cirrhosis, hypertension, and benign prostatic hypertrophy who's presenting to clinic for evaluation of dysuria. So I'd love to just kind of get your thoughts on, you know, what you think might be going on. I know we all have our kind of diagnostic schemas. Love to hear your thoughts on what you're thinking. Yeah, I guess first thing that comes to mind, 59-year-old guy with hypertension and BPH, I wouldn't say if that's particularly unique, but I think the thing that does stand out to me, at least is the cirrhosis. I'm kind of wondering what the background is about that. A lot of different etiologies we can think about. 
leading to cirrhosis. So I'd be interested in maybe evaluating for those types of questions, even just from his history, disregarding the dysuria. Yeah, definitely. And then about the dysuria, I think the first thing that usually comes to mind is a UTI, but you know, this patient's a male, so a little bit less likely because we often hear that dysuria tends to be a less common symptom in men for UTIs than like frequency and urgency. So I thought that was an interesting bit there, but with his BPH, obviously increased risk of urinary retention, stasis, and infection. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I think kind of along the same lines of basically all of the pathologies, same with cirrhosis, like increasing the odds of different infections. And so I'm kind of curious as to kind of what you were saying, maybe different unique etiologies for this dysuria that maybe aren't just associated with a young female that's sexually active or something like that. Yeah, I think those are great points. And I think something that you both brought up that I'd love to touch base on is some of the risk factors that we can see, particularly with urinary tract infections. You mentioned the benign prostatic hypertrophy. I guess I'm just thinking, what are some other things that we might be concerned about that could be risk factors, things that we want to check in, ask about, just so that are in the back of our heads? I think diabetes in general puts you at risk for more infections. And just to clarify, Daniel, is this in general or is it in this particular patient that we would want to ask about? Let's start general, just kind of get your thought process, and then we can kind of tailor back to this patient. Sure. So like Osama was saying, being female, having a shorter urethra, being sexually active. You said diabetes already. Maybe I can jump in here and ask you guys a question, because you guys are touching on this. When we think about infections, we think about host factors and anatomic factors. When you think about UTIs, which do you guys think might matter more, in particular in men? Do you think it's the immune system, or do you think it's the anatomy that might drive urinary tract infections in men? You guys are touching on this. You said the answer. I guess it's a 50-50, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, because I feel like I usually associate women with the anatomy end of things. You just said it, the anatomy. You also talked about in men, the prostate. So it just so happens, because if you think about patients that have immune dysfunction, you learn about frequent pneumonias, you learn about chronic diarrhea. If you actually remember some of the teaching there, you actually don't hear a lot about recurrent UTI. But when we talk about UTIs, again, we're jumping a little bit with dysuria, but I think dysuria and UTI are closely affiliated here. They were talking about shorter urethral tracts in, in women, and that's why they might get urinary tract infections more than men. And then in men, obstruction, so a prostate. So I think you guys got the answer. It's typically the anatomy. Great, fantastic. And just an interesting point to add here, thinking about infection and immune factor, going back to this patient's history of cirrhosis. So the most common infection for patients who have cirrhosis would be SBP, but the second most common is actually a UTI. Huh? So something to, something to think about. Yeah, I think that was a fantastic overview. I'd love to hear your thoughts on any questions you'd like to ask this particular patient, any additional information you think might be helpful to kind of further the thought process. I think I would want to know at what stage this patient's cirrhosis is in particular. Have they had any decompensations, any GI bleeding, or any episodes of SBP like Lauren mentioned? I'd like to also explore some of the social factors perhaps behind the cirrhosis, whether that's alcoholic cirrhosis versus maybe a NASH picture. I think also regarding the rest of the history, kind of knowing the time scale of what we're thinking about. How long has he had cirrhosis? How long has he had hypertension or BPH? Are these things being controlled by medications? Tempo is one of my favorite things to kind of think about and layer on the complaints and history. I love that you brought up kind of getting some time course onto his chronic problems. How would sussing out the tempo of this complaint of dysuria kind of change things and change your thinking? Yeah, I think regarding the tempo, at least what jumps to mind for me is mostly along the lines of 
has he had any associated symptoms and for how long, I, I guess would be my first instinct. Because if we were thinking about something like stasis, urinary stasis, secondary to BPA, he would have been having these symptoms for some time or at least some bladder fullness or something like that, yeah. some associated symptoms. So kind of a roundabout way of answering your tempo question. Like it. Anything else? Yeah, I think tempo would definitely kind of make a big impact on the differential. You know, if, it, if this is something that's only been going on for the last couple of days, you would think probably more something like a UTI. If it's been going on for months and months, you know, is it something more like chronic prostatitis or something like that? Yeah. I was just going to ask, because I, I was trying to jog my memory and I was like, I can't remember if dysuria is one of the symptoms of, of prostatitis because I was just thinking along the lines of tempo, we also have acute and chronic prostatitis that you were talking about. So we may not even find a species here <laughs> if we were to take his urine. I think that's a really good point that you mentioned. I kind of want to highlight that. It sounds like what, one of the things that you're saying is for patients who have an acute versus a chronic course of infection, that can kind of clue us into whether is this a recurrent infection or is this kind of a one-time thing? And I think that's kind of one of the things that we're thinking about. I think that's a, that's a great place to kind of jump off. Why don't we move on into the next aliquot and just kind of see where this plays out. So his pain with urination started one week ago. He had two prior episodes of prostatitis versus cystitis, and he was hospitalized for one of the episodes. He's had no fevers, chills, or abdominal pain. In terms of past surgical history, he has a transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt, or a TIPS procedure. And for social history, he has approximately a two-pack year for about 30 years smoking history, but he has cut down. In terms of alcohol use, he has a history of moderate use and stopped about 10 years ago. In sexual history, he's monogamous with a female partner and no prior history of a sexually transmitted for current medications, he's currently taking Utasarite, Tamsulosin, Ursodiol, Metoprolol, Colostyramine, and Aspirin. A lot of information. Yeah, for sure. Sam, does anything jump out to you? Oh, definitely the two prior episodes of prostatitis and cystitis. Interested to hear if there's any old culture data out there. Why does that jump out? If, I guess if he's had a prior history of an infection, this could be another recurrence, yeah. but also trying to keep our differential broad and not kind of anchoring on infection. I think the smoking history kind of makes me think about, you know, malignancy, possibly bladder cancer. It could also be something that would maybe present with dysuria. And kind of along the same lines of what Dr. Dwanu was talking about, two prior episodes of UTIs in a guy this age, I start to think along the lines of anatomy, maybe he's predisposed for whatever reason. Kind of along the same lines from what you were talking about for bladder cancer, also prostate cancer as well. On the younger side, in my opinion, I guess I haven't seen that much prostate cancer, but I think that kind of given the smoking history, just like you referred to other types of malignancies and my differential too. As I really like your differential at your bulletin, talked about cystitis, talked about prostatitis, acute and chronic, we're now seeing potential recurrent infection, and now you bring up non-infectious causes like bladder cancer and somebody that's smoked and drank, which are both risk factors for bladder cancer. There's one other kind of area or infection to think about that I'm prompted by their social history, specifically their sexual history, monogamous with a female partner, no history of STDs. That helps me, but I don't know if it helps me enough to say, could this be urethritis? And so without playing a guessing game, just keep that in mind. And are there the common, you guys remember the common bugs for urethritis that we typically screen for? Gonorrhea, chlamydia. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, as we're starting to think about, you know, let's go back and look at that culture data. You know, did anybody actually test this gentleman for those? Because we find out they were culture negative or there wasn't tests, it might be because they weren't doing the right tests. Is there anything, now that we have this information, anything that you're interested in ordering or looking at in terms of prior history? We, we talked about, like Dr. Ndwani mentioned, maybe if there's any prior urine culture data. Anything else that you might be interested in looking at for the patient's past history? 
I don't know what you saw, but I feel like for me, when I see tips, I want to know a little bit more about what prior treatments for that were. In my opinion, at least, or at least from my experience, my understanding, tips isn't typically the thing we reach for first. We usually try and do other measures before that. So I want to see if there's any other associate history, other failed treatments or failed procedures that maybe could not keep us under, under wraps. It seems a little bit not related to the chief complaint, but I think I'm just interested if we're going to go chart digging. Yeah, definitely. I'd want to know this person's MELD score to kind of triage how quickly, you know, this person could get sick and potentially decompensate further from an infection. And I think as Dan mentioned, the old, old urine cultures, I'd be interested in getting out of the chart and also seeing if this person's ever been tested for gonorrhea and chlamydia. Yeah. Fantastic. I think something that I really like that you mentioned is specifically when we're talking about things to look at, when we're talking about the recurrent UTIs, we've mentioned structural issues as well as the non-structural issues. And I think having that open differential is so crucial when we're building our thought process. That's good. Why don't we keep going and we'll get into the physical exam and kind of what the history showed, okay? All right. So on exam, the patient is afebrile with a temperature of 98.2, blood pressure of 101 over 67, and a heart rate of 77 with a BMI of 34. On physical exam, the patient is in no acute distress and while appearing obese in rhythm with no murmurs, with lungs clear to auscultation bilaterally. The abdomen is soft and non-tender. And on rectal exam, the prostate is soft and symmetric without tenderness or nodules. There is no edema in the extremities with 5 out of 5 strength in all extremities. Additionally, we do have labs from about 6 and 3 months ago, many of which you, you also recommended we get. Sodium 139, potassium of 3.6. We have a chloride of 107 and a bicarb of 27, BUN of 10, and a creatinine of 0.78, along with a glucose level of 88. We have a white blood cell count of 5.4, a hemoglobin of 15.4, and a platelet count of 103. I also want to draw your attention to the urine cultures like you recommended we get. One year ago, the patient had a positive urine culture for over 100,000 E. coli and 100,000 enterococcus, and six months ago, the patient had another positive urine culture for 5,000 E. coli. This is a tough outlet for a couple <laughs> different reasons. Yeah. You have an exam that is in the present that's giving you information about what's going on now or not going on. And then you have old lab data. Maybe you could draw some things from it. Some of it might be relevant, but a lot of it was important in the time when, when it was tested for. So how do you use that information going forward? Do you use that information going forward? Yeah, I guess regarding at least the culture data, Sam, I don't know if you have different thoughts on this, but I guess the, the common trend being the 5,000 E. coli, I don't know if that's enough to make a clinically significant effect, but it would suggest to me that maybe there's some hanging around from prior treatments, perhaps treatment resistant at this point from the initial treatment, but at least the enterococcus is gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think Chronic E. coli colonization that kind of keeps flaring up recurrently is a good thought. But I think just to be thorough, I would probably still do another UA and a reflex culture. I see what we get this time. And the enterococcus is a bit weird to me, something that I'd usually associate with more of a nosocomial UTI rather than a community acquired. So curious about the context of the last UTI as well. I'd love to make a comment and, and see what you guys think. One thing that is nice about this data is it kind of confirms a little bit of history. Sometimes we get histories, but they might mislead us. So this guy has this history of cystitis and prostatitis. The fact that you have positive culture data confirms this is a man that's had some kind of genital urinary infection. We talked about this a little bit earlier in the case about how to think about the immune system versus the anatomy. Really, any man with a genital urinary infection needs a workup, and that's unique 
to men. Women, we assume that there's colonization and because of the shorter urethra that there's less complexity or less confusion as to why the infection happened. And men, we have to dig a bit deeper. So not only should have there been a more workup earlier, but now he's presenting with a symptom and we've got this culture data that suggests, well, this is a real infection that he's had in the past. You noted that there might be E. coli hanging around. It kind of gets into the idea of like this, the differential that we'll be building. Before we get into that, and I, I know Daniel probably didn't drive us getting into that. We talked about prostatitis. You know, this normal, normal rectal exam. Does that drop prostatitis on your differential? Do you still think it's likely or other? Dr. Dr. Didwani was throwing me bait right where I was hoping he would. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was really looking for I, I was like setting you up. I know, I see this aliquot. I'm actually pretty happy about some things. The fact that his rectal exam soft, symmetric, no tenderness or nodules, it kind of pulls down the prostate cancer thing that I was I was referring to before. As I think what he was pushing us towards in this case is it can probably drop acute prostatitis a little bit off of our differential, a little bit, not the chronic end of things, but at least the acute side, because you have that classic super tender prostate. Exquisitely uh, tender. Exquisitely tender. <laughs> One's rather hopping off the exam table. When you We're all shifting in our chairs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then the normal white count too. I'm pretty happy about that as well. The fact that, that would, we would expect that to be elevated too. I think that's right. I think it lowers acute prostatitis, acute bacterial prostatitis on our list. It does not change the probability of chronic bacterial prostatitis. And we're talking about the exam. The history is analogous. Patients can report pelvic or rectal pain and acute bacterial prostatitis, pain with a bowel movement as the stool passes through the sigmoid um, colon. It can abut the prostate and irritate it. But in chronic bacterial prostatitis, they can be pretty asymptomatic, remarkably, but just present with dysuria in an abnormal UA. So great. Fantastic points. Again, kind of differentiating what does acute look like versus what does chronic look like. I'd actually like to dig a little bit deeper into this. I think this is actually a great learning point for us to pause here. We talk a little bit about an uncomplicated versus a complicated UTI. And that's something that, that we've heard of before in clinic. And I'd love to get your thoughts on what that means and what the distinction is and kind of what we do to work up one versus another. Yeah, I mentioned in the kind of when we were talking before we had started recording, I'm, I'm an engineering background by trade. And I think that information is sometimes a little bit much for me. I like to think in really broad strokes, really simple terms. And at least for me, Dan, answer your question, mm -hmm. uncomplicated versus complicated. Complicated to me just means associated other symptoms, things like fever, things yeah. like just general symptom or systemic symptoms rather. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's much there's much more nuanced definition somewhere in there, but when I'm looking generally at a person, are they sick or not sick? I'm, I'm usually grouping them in complicated versus uncomplicated. And that is kind of my approach to that topic as well. I, I think that's a perfect way, perfect way to summarize it. Usually for uncomplicated UTIs, we typically don't see the systemic symptoms that we might see in complicated UTIs. Infections are often controlled within the bladder, like you mentioned. Whereas in a complicated UTI, we can see systemic symptoms like flank pain, fever, perennial pain. And like you mentioned, there are a lot of different associated things that can be in the setting of a complicated UTI. Things like hydronephrosis, fistulas, immunocompromise. So like you mentioned, it's really helpful to take terms and just kind of break it down to the most simple level to figure out, okay, what does this mean? I'd love to get your thoughts on if this patient may be having a complicated versus an uncomplicated UTI. I think that's a helpful point for us to figure out, okay, what's, what do we think might be happening here? I think the fact that it is recurrent, occurring in a male, which UTIs tend to be less common, and the fact that this patient also has a history of cirrhosis and BPH, kind of putting all of those things together, I'm thinking of classifying this more in the complicated bucket. Yeah, Dan, I mean, 
I keep things simple, but there's some nuance sometimes <laughs> in these things. Right? Like, kind of just like what Osama was saying, this, this picture looks a little bit too suspicious of something else going on, but I can't necessarily just jump just because I see a normal temperature. I can't just immediately complicate it. So I agree with Osama. I'd probably err towards the size of complicated. Simple cystitis won't make morning report or a podcast. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and so this is exactly right. The signs and symptoms will help you decide, but I do think the host factors are part of the definition. So if they're immunosuppressed, I would be hard pressed to call anything a simple cystitis. And honestly, even a first episode of cystitis in a man, assume it's complicated because we have to do a workup for anatomic or other issues. So almost by definition, this being an older man with cirrhosis, we have to call this complicated, even though no fever normal white count. We're still waiting on, you know, maybe a couple other laps here, but I call this complicated just by the host factors. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. In fact, when I was reading up on this, I saw that it's so rare that apparently only roughly five UTIs every year for around 10,000 young to middle-aged men are, are classified as uncomplicated. Huh. So the vast majority are complicated, I think. So I think that's a... What are, a funny statistic that... <laughs> They were really, really all about the accuracy of this. Very helpful. But I also think an important point is in terms of the actual organisms that can be causing a complicated versus an uncomplicated UTI. You mentioned the enterococcus present in the culture. And that's kind of odd, different than what we've normally seen. It seems roughly 95 to 75 to 95 percent of the organisms that cause an uncomplicated UTI are what you might imagine. E. coli. E. coli is what we most commonly see with other organisms like Klebsiella and Proteus being much, much lower. And of course, enterococcus raises a lot of questions like what's, what's going on here. One important teaching point that I'd, I'd love to leave with all of us is in terms of management for uncomplicated UTIs. There's a specific distinction between antibiotic treatment for cystitis versus prostatitis. And that's because some of the medications are only active in the bladder. And I'd love to just kind of take a quick second to just touch on this. So we know that for first-line treatment for an uncomplicated cystitis, we classically think of nitroferentoin and phosphomycin or Bactrim for a seven-day course. But an interesting note is nitroferentoin is only active within the bladder. And so for patients with prostatitis, these medications are not as effective. And I think that's a really crucial point for us to kind of take long-term. For any prostate involvement, we classically look to the fluoroquinolones, agents like ciprofloxacin or levofloxacin for a five-day course. Now, like you mentioned, we don't anticipate that is what we're, we're seeing happening for this patient, but I think it's just a, a nice point to keep in mind as we move forward. Great, great. All right, so with that being said, why don't we keep moving on to some further labs and we'll see what's going on today, okay? All right. So current labs, the patient's sodium today is 141, with a potassium of 3.4. Chloride is 106 with a bicarb of 26. We have a BUN of 10 with a creatinine of 0.8. Today's white blood cell count is 7.4 with a hemoglobin of 13.8 and a platelet count of 123. We've also gotten a urinalysis, like you suggest we get. The urine color is orange and cloudy. There is some trace protein. We do have some trace ketones with moderate blood in the urine. There's a positive trace of nitrates with large leucasterase and over 100 white blood cells and around 100 red blood cells also present in the urine. There's three plus bacteria and one plus squamous epithelial cells. We also ran susceptibilities just to kind of be prophylactic about this. And we saw susceptibility to nitrofurantoin along with a couple other ages. A lot of info. And the plot think it's <laughs> the plot definitely thickens. Is there anything that jumps out to you in terms of or rather what the most pertinent pertinent information for you seems to be? Well, 
They've got bacteria. I agree with that. A student. Reassuring, even if it's, you know, troubling for the patient. We're getting closer to an answer, which is nice. A little bit surprised to see it being susceptible to so many things and keep on coming back. Right. Uh, so maybe, you know, there's more of a host issue going on here that keeps it coming back yeah. rather than a pathogen issue. Yeah. Yeah. I would say if I were to short it on rounds, I'd probably just report it as hand susceptible. But I'm a little bit curious to hear your thoughts on the rest of the UA, specifically the red blood cells. I mean, it's not abnormal, I suppose, to have a UTI with red blood cells in it, but it does strike me as a little bit odd or unexpected, at least especially in this picture considering more complicated or an abnormal version of a UTI in this patient. Right, I just wanted to push you a little bit on the susceptibilities, mainly because of what Daniel shared about what works or it's concentrated in the bladder or the prostate. There's a lot of good susceptibility here, but for oral regimens, I'm noticing it's resistant to fluoroquinolone, it's resistant to Bactrim, and that susceptibility to nitrofurantoin, not being an expert, in susceptibilities, but that 32 is a borderline number. That's true. So there's a little bit of trickiness in interpreting this for what I can prescribe in the outpatient setting for this E. coli. That EC is E. coli, is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I, I'm, I just want to be a little careful oh, that's a fair point. about how uh, what drug to give right now, mm-hmm. what antibiotic to give. So what drug do you want to give? <laughs> <laughs> <On that note. laughs> No, that's, that's a really good point. And I always forget that the susceptibilities are actually backwards. The smaller the number, the better the, the drug. Yes. This may not be applicable everywhere, but from our ID colleagues here, I've learned if there isn't a less than or equal sign next to it, it probably really isn't susceptible. I see. Choose another agent. That's good to know. In which case are we hospitalizing this case? That's going to be a question you're faced with in a few months. So why don't you tackle it? Hey, seeing you in the office right now, you've mentioned the last alquat. It's not really sick appearing. Now we have some culture data and you have to take action on it. We have some results and fit along with a lot of where your differential's been heading. So what do we do now? Do we start management? I think if we're planning on sending them out, I like the fact that ceftriaxone's up there, susceptible. There's a third generation cephalosporin that is oral, I believe. Is it ceft- uh, cephalodoxin? Oh, maybe it's cephalodoxin then. Perhaps it's not. Well, that, that's still susceptible. <laughs> so perhaps we could send them back on that. All right. That's if we were to set an outpatient. I guess we haven't really dove into the rest of the UAs slash if we're concerned about that. But yeah, but I think if, to directly answer your question, if we're going to pick an agent, cephalonoxy perhaps. Hmm. Okay. Are you leaning towards inpatient management, outpatient? I'm really putting you on the spot here. Maybe we could back up and I'll ask you, does he look sick to you or sound sick to you? Or does he sound like he's doing okay despite the symptoms in the abnormal labs? I think from a symptom perspective, he doesn't seem sick to me. If I were to classify him or see him in the ED, I don't think I would be immediately concerned. That being said, yeah, I think on surface, it it doesn't look like the patient would immediately need to be hospitalized, but with kind of a little bit more advanced age and I think the patient's history of cirrhosis requiring tips it kind of gives me a little bit of pause as to, you know, whether I'm comfortable with sending this patient out and, you know, is there a chance that he could rapidly decompensate from this infection and become septic? Absolutely. When we talk about host factors, the other host factors are how well can they walk? Can they call me back tomorrow? <laughs> can I call them when they pick up their phone? 
And so the primary care setting, if he doesn't appear sick, which you guys were all over, I agree. I think it's reasonable to try an oral regimen. It's tricky to find what oral regimen. I think a second, third degree oral cephalosporin is a good choice here. And sending him home with early follow-up. And a belief or understanding that he can reach out if he suddenly spiked a fever and got very sick tonight or tomorrow. Excellent. One question for you all here, too. What do you make of the PSA? We have a PSA of 0.22. We have our rectal exam. How does that fit into your your thinking of this patient? I guess for me, the PSA validated what we were thinking before. We didn't find any nodules, any abnormalities. I wrote on my little sheet of paper within normal limits prostate. So the PSA, I think, would just nicely fit under that. I, I have a low suspicion right now for some sort of prostate etiology, or at least of the hyperplastic or neoplastic type. And I, I love how when you're thinking about, is this patient sick or not sick? You're not just looking at the labs, but you're thinking of the patient as a whole. What can they get back to me? Can they contact us? I think that's so important to keep in mind. Let's let's keep moving. Let's, let's see what happens and keep going. So the patient was treated with nitrofurantoin and symptoms improved after finishing the course, but the dysuria soon returned. We got a repeat urinalysis that showed, again, a cloudy urine with positive nitrates and moderate leucasterase. We are again seeing around 50 white blood cells with around three plus bacteria, negative squamous epithelial cells and negative red blood cells this time. We've also gotten a repeat culture that shows Klebsiella and E. coli greater than 100,000. So at this point, there was some concern for urinary tract infection in the setting of perhaps a prostatitis. And so the patient was started on levofloxacin for 30 days and referred to urology. So at this point, the patient has gone home. They are currently on the levofloxacin course. And you get an EMR message from the patient. And the message says, hey, doc, I think I'm farting from my penis. Definitely a st- an unusual message to get, not something we usually hear from our patients. How does this change your diagnosis? What, what are your thoughts that come to mind when a patient reports that they think they're farting from their penis? You know, you're not going to read that in a... <laughs> but, but that is how our patients talk to us, because it's actually quite specific. And, you know, you know if I, if you, I want to step back just for one quick second from that, because there's something very profound about that, that somewhat colorful comment. You know, we talked a little bit about anatomy and how rare it is for a man to get a, a urinary tract infection. So this referral to urology should be just sort of a reflex. And what they're really going to do is help you, help the primary care doc, work up that differential of where in the anatomy the problem could be. We've talked about the bladder. We didn't really talk about the kidneys or the ureters, but there could be obstructions or stones in those areas. So that's where urologists is going to help us. And sometimes we can jump ahead and do a CT scan or, you know, ask some of the questions like flank pain, ask about a kidney stone history or history that suggests past kidney stones. You know, we talked a little bit about the antibiotic choice here, and it's a little confusing. I mean, they were cipro-resistant, but we do know the fluoroclinolones concentrate in the prostate went well. So there's some discomfort I have with that, but I also felt feel the how strapped it was to make a decision on that. Before we get to that colorful comment, there's an old culture that had two bugs, and this culture has two bugs. And I'm curious how you feel about that. I know you said before we get to the colorful comment, but actually I feel like the first thing that jumped to my mind was it reframes the enterococcus. Because yeah. the other place I typically associate enterococcus with is also the GI tract as well. So we're thinking GI tract, we're thinking E. coli, also GI tract. We're thinking Klebsiella, also possibly GI tract. And now we're thinking about farting. We're thinking about two different systems that should not be coming from where they're coming. Yeah, sounds like you guys are on the right path. That's exactly what I'm thinking about, is a nice little detour. Yeah, yeah, 
think the first thing that came to mind when reading that message was like, sounds like we have a fistula. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm curious, what do you think about where the fistula is? Because I know, as Dr. Dwani was talking about, there's a whole host of places where fistulas form. I am not too well versed in fistulas, personally. And I was wondering if you had any ideas as to where this could be forming, like anatomically. I think Dr. Dwani was talking about earlier how you can get like dyschesia with prostatitis and cystitis because the sigmoid colon passes pretty close to that area. So that's one area that comes to, to my mind. Yeah, that makes sense. So I like, I kind of, I'm extrapolating from how you're thinking, but this is what I think I'm getting from it. This is an unlikely event to happen, right? And you're kind of trying to put it as, well, if, okay, if this were to happen, where is it likely to happen? Well, let's think anatomically. That's probably where things are closest together. So let's start looking there. I was going to push you guys a little bit. Why would this even happen in the first place before we get to where? Yeah, I was thinking a little bit about that. And I know we never got into the etiology of this person, cirrhosis, but if it was something like PSC, I know that can be associated with ulcerative colitis and inflammatory bowel disease, and that's right. something that can lead to fistula. So that's one thought that I had. I don't know, Ryan, if you had more. No, absolutely. That was exactly where I was going myself. I'll throw in Crohn's in the same picture, but I think kind of given the liver pathology that we've already encountered, I think PSC is a really good idea that leads straight to ulcerative colitis, as you were talking about. It's associated with a lot of fistulas, too, so that's fair. I love your thought process. I love how you're trying to tie things in together. What are you going to do next? Well, Kevin, if I could, yeah, yeah. I want to push the differential a little bit about what might cause this, because I feel like we're seeing all the signs and symptoms of a fistula here. IBD is a great thought. IBD is inflammatory. It's an itis. What else are the itises of the bowel? I suppose you could also get diverticulitis as well as like a means of perhaps forming fistulas. I guess I personally yeah. don't associate them with general urinary fistulas, but it absolutely makes fistulas as Dr. Didwani is pushing us towards. I think I, I, that's right. So, you know, you could imagine colitis, you know, there's a whole differential for enterocolitis, infectious, inflammatory, like IBD, but diverticulitis, I think is a very common cause. And then, you know, without pushing you guys, but just think about malignancies, you know, they cause inflammation, they cause anatomy, and they can ruin prone bowel to bladder, bladder to bowel. Nice. So what, what are you interested in doing next? Colonoscopy, question mark? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to look for some sort of scope. So yeah, I wasn't sure if we, or, if we do the colonoscopy. If we do the colonoscopy? Like, yeah, or like a retrograde cystoscopy. So, what gender are you going to tackle it from? From the bottom? <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you A or P. <laughs> what about imaging? Any imaging you think would be helpful? Correct if I'm wrong, but I feel like you can see some fistulas with a CT scan. Pelvis CT scan contrast with oral contrast. Yeah. You can see where it's linking to. Yeah, yeah. You guys are so good at like yeah. working this out, but that's that's right. With oral contrast, you might be able to identify a fistula. And I also want, you know, when I was talking a little bit about this history, this colorful description, but the idea of passing air through the penis is actually quite specific to air entering the bladder. And it is most commonly, almost always a fistula. So we're on the right track. And no pun intended. And imaging is going to help you. Imaging to identify the fistula would be nice. And there's some yield there. What else might you see in imaging that could help us here? Or not see? I guess since you mentioned one of the things that could cause inflammation in fistula is cancer. So we could see any like tumors that are in the area of imaging. That's exactly right. In fact, just one of the principles in medicine is when you have your differential you're thinking about is like, well, how do I rule out a cancer? You know, does it help me if this gentleman's got diverticulosis, 
which might imply that he's had diverticulitis at some point in the past. You can start looking for these things on the CT. And that might be a reason to get that earlier than the scope because you might see a little bit more to rule in and out some of the things on your differential. Great. And I think this is actually a really important running point that I'd love to just kind of pause on and emphasize. <clears throat> we're on, I think we're on the right track of the potential colovesical fistula as a connection. It seems that roughly 65 to 79% of these fistulas are in the setting of a diverticulosis diverticulitis with other common, common etiologies, including colonic malignancy, IBD, like you mentioned, and also congenital abnormalities. And often the most common symptom that we see is actually pneumaturia towards the end of urination. So this patient's comment about farting from the penis is actually a very common common symptom that patients have with fistulas. You should have written, I'm having pneumaturia. I think I'd be even more confused if I got that as a patient. <laughs> But I'm hearing some great things. I'm hearing maybe a CT scan with some oral contrast. Just to kind of clarify, why, why oral contrast as opposed to a different form of contrast administration? I guess if we're trying to find like an abnormal connection between the lumen of the bowel going elsewhere, mm -hmm. it makes sense to put contrast into the lumen of the bowel and see where it goes. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's, that's some flawless logic. That's, that's, <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. Yes. What, what would be the risk, though, if you did IV contrast? The risk Contrast. Oh, kidneys. You're on the right. Pun intended. You're on the right track again. <laughs> what was? Would that sense? information be useful if we had IV contrast? I guess if we're thinking that IV contrast would eventually reach the bladder, and then we're thinking it's a tract, and a tract is not necessarily one way. I guess we would see it in the other tract. <laughs> that is to say, the GI system. Whether or not that be useful. I guess it would be less compelling because we would see, I, I would imagine at least, we're ending pretty anatomically south that we may not be able to find it. I, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, but when we take pictures with contrast, we're taking them at a particular time so that we can catch the contrast. And I guess timing would be a lot more difficult to land if we're using IV. If that answers your question, Laura. <laughs> that's that's it. That's it. It's gonna end up in the bladder, but you won't know if it got to the bladder the way it's supposed to, kidneys to the bladder, or if there was a GI fistula tract in the even oral. So I do think it complicates the picture, and you're not supposed to get IV contrast if you're looking for a colovesicular fistula. So great answer. Nailed it. Wonderful. All right. Let's, let's keep moving, and let's see what these imaging and procedures showed us. All right. So we did get a CT abdomen pelvis that showed mild diverticulitis involving the distal descending and sigmoid colon with a small amount of air seen within the bladder. This could be the result of recent instrumentation or consistent with a colovesical fistula, though no tract was identified. Oral contrast was not seen in the bladder. We also got a fluoroscopy cystogram that showed no radiographic evidence of a vesico-rectal fistula and an unremarkable cystographic appearance. Hey, I always have to find myself that this is a morning report. <laughs> Are you anchoring now, though? <laughs> I think, yes, in retrospect, I think... I think it's hard sometimes. I feel like we were having such good momentum, a nice chugging train along the way. And then I feel like we only identify anchoring in retrospect, because if you were anchoring on the correct answer, you're like, you got it from the beginning. Yeah, you're always right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But th this definitely changes things. Yeah. What do you think about this, Osama? Time to go back to the drawing board. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, well, so what, what, do you, what on here makes you feel like it's opposing a colovesicular fistula? And is there anything on here that says, oh no, the door, this, this track still might be open. 
I'm running with this pun. Yes. <laughs> I can't hear it correctly now. So many opportunities. I know, right? <laughs> I think the lack of a track makes it, by definition, less consistent. But I'm not completely, completely out the door yet, just given the air in the bladder. And the fact that there is mild diverticulitis in the distal and sigmoid colon. So there's I think that's right. So you do, we got our ticks. And the air in the bladder is something you're going to find most often in colovasicular fistulas on CT imaging. That's the clue. The fact that it's small drives me nuts too. Like it was a large amount of air. Like, yeah, I got the answer. So there's still some things in here that keep the door open for our, you know, leading diagnosis or leading path right now. So we actually worked with urology to figure out a potential next step for this patient. And urology had a very interesting recommendation. They recommended something called a poppy seed test. I would love to get your thoughts on what you think a poppy seed test might be and what that might tell us. This is way out here. <laughs> I'm thinking of poppy seed. I'm thinking real small. I'm thinking real small. Eat a bunch of poppy seeds. Follows down the track. I'm talking a lot of poppy seeds. What's <laughs> <laughs> the inside of your bottle? And then it just happens to translocate through. Thoughts. That could be a thing. My <laughs> face tells me otherwise. <laughs> I think we've got some some great teamwork here and thinking through this this poppy seed test. So that's that's kind of exactly what the logic is. So the patient eats around thirty five to two hundred and fifty grams of straight poppy seeds, and <laughs> and the next step is to look for poppy seeds in the urine because, like you mentioned, poppy seeds are very very small. And so uh, something that we can do for these patients is to look for these in the urine. And something that I thought really interesting when I was looking into different modalities for determining colovesical fistulas, it's, it turns out the sensitivity for a poppy seed test is roughly 99%. And the cost for a poppy seed test, well, let, just to give some value that sense. So for a CT scans, as you can imagine, are very expensive in the hundreds to maybe even thousands of dollars. A poppy seed test came up to around $5.39 nice. for an extremely high sensitivity. So just something to keep in mind. I think it's very cool that this is something that has real implications and can actually be very helpful for us when we're figuring out a diagnosis. Can I, can I back up for a second? Yeah. So we're, about, we're, we're talking about this like test that just sounds wild and thankfully cheap. But the decision to pursue a test that you know we just don't know or are familiar with is really based on a strong pretest probability. We've talked about it, the history, the exam, the signs and symptoms. Do you guys feel convinced that this is a colovesicular fistula and the CT is just wrong or not helpful enough and that this should be the direction we continue to pursue? Or are we just on the wrong path and we need to like step back and go look for something totally different now? I think that kind of what you had alluded to actually in the first part of that prompt was that you said it's cheap, it's readily available. And I think if this were a very expensive or inconvenient test, I'd be more cautious sending the patient down this road, because I think there's evidence and we have a lot of good signs and symptoms that lead us to this. But the fact that this test is so cheap, so readily available, worst comes to worst, it ends up being negative. I feel like not that much harm has been done to the patient, to the overall medical system. I don't think anyone's gonna bemoan the loss of five bucks of poppy seeds. So I can think you order that in the EMR? Poppy seed test? I think I can get that from Trader Joe's. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'm hoping, so to answer your question, Dr. Dibuania, I think I'm okay, even if I'm wrong, I don't feel like I've lost that much. I think we're missing a really important question here. Yeah. 
Just a patient like Poppy. <laughs> Check the allergies. Ask. What kind of bagels do you eat? Sir? Exactly. exactly. And, and, you know, to go back, it's very interesting how you answer that question, which is, you know, what's the safety cost of our next test or intervention? And I think that's a very important way to think about medicine. But you guys also, throughout the case, have been getting to this idea of, boy, this sounds, looks, smells like a colovesicular fistula. And if we think about like, what else is our differential, there's not a strong second. Talked about other host factors, worry about cirrhosis, talked about the anatomy, you know. We didn't get a full detail about the urology evaluation, although he had a cyst cystoscope. There's nothing else coming up. There's not like a stone hanging up in his renal pelvis that might be harboring, you know, some infection that just keeps being difficult to treat. So we really feel strongly about this as our diagnosis. And I think that's important to pursue more unusual tests. Thankfully, this one's cheap yeah. <laughs> and works very well. Right, right. Well, let's, let's, let's see what happens. So the patient ended up, did, ended up having poppy seeds in their urine consistent with a colobesical fistula. It seems there was a repeat cystoscopy shown a fistula in the left posterior slash lateral wall, and the patient was treated with a prolonged course of nitroferentoin. Ultimately, we need repair of the vest fistula, and so the patient received a left hemicolectomy with repair of the colobesical fistula, and pathology showed no malignant. Well, mm -hmm. the poppy seed test worked. Poppy yeah. seed test. <laughs> Amazing. Well, hey, fantastic job, guys. Yeah. That was such a wonderful di differential diagnosis. I love the way you broke it down and kind of organized your thoughts and kind of tackled this very methodically. I think that at the end of the day, that thought process is so important. I, and I'm so glad I got to hear you, the way you approached this problem. Great work. I'd love to add one of the pieces of wisdom in medicine is, is the final diagnosis explained the chief complaint. And in this case, it's remarkably elegant. It really does. And you had to find an unusual test to make that diagnosis, but you never veered from this idea of literally every step along the way, a UTI, then a recurrent UTI, and then pneumaturia really were strong and compelling to pursue this. So I loved your discussion. I love the comments and lots of pearls along the way. Great job, guys. <laughs> yes. Great work. And I think just to be silly, but they're both going into IM. I think they're a package deal wherever they end up. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. This is something of a couple's bitch. <laughs> <laughs> but I think just throughout, you, we're practicing such crazy, awesome clinical reasoning principles, like throughout your discussion, without even saying it, you're factoring in likelihood ratios. You can just see how you were like tilting the needle. Things were more likely, less likely based on things that we weren't seeing or were seeing. And it's so cool to see you guys do that as fourth year medical students. You're about to be interns. You're about to be actually doing this as a living, it's so cool to see and to have this seat to listen to it. I think you guys should feel proud. Just really cool to listen to. And Daniel, amazing job, <laughs> amazing discussion. And I'm, do you guys have any final reflections? I just want to say thank you for having us for this case. I think it was a really good learning experience as well. Yeah, absolutely. I was really scared by the preamble, even though you specifically said it'd be fun. <laughs> <laughs> It's too long. <laughs> Does it help or have stress? Absolutely. You guys did a fabulous job all around. Great work. Yeah. Awesome job. Maybe we can wrap up with some big take-home points yeah. just to kind of wrap, wrap this all together and then we can kind of go, close things out. So I think some really important take-home points are number one, differentiating the course of an illness is crucial to determining if something is complicated versus uncomplicated. And tying in the recurrence factor really helps us distinguish what might, be, what might the etiology be. For an uncomplicated UTI, we talked about medications such as nitroferantoin, Bactrim, or Phospholmycin, which must be distinctly different from medications to treat prostatitis, such as fluoroquinolones, which are most commonly concentrated in the prostate. 
For patients with recurrent urinary tract infections, something to always consider is a cold vesicle fistula, particularly in the setting of diverticulosis or diverticulitis. And we talked about using a CT abdomen and pelvis, specifically with oral or rectal contrast as crucial to establishing a connection between those two tracts. And of course, if needed, we always do have this poppy seed test that just, <laughs> it's just icing on the cake for an additional option. Well, fantastic. I think we covered a lot of these points and I'm really glad we had such a robust discussion. Thank you all of you. <laughs> Such a great time. Yeah, thank you, everyone. Thanks, Osama and Ryan. Thanks, Dr. Dwani, for joining us. Thanks, Daniel, for everything. We're excited to have you on the team. I wish I could kind of carry you around with me on Ralph. <laughs> Give those, those <laughs> wrap-up points, because that's awesome. Lauren, anything before we sign off? No, I don't think so. I think you both did a really excellent job working through the differential, keeping it broad, but then using each data point to kind of rule in, rule out. So, great work. Thank you. All right, on that note, we'll see you next time. Thanks again for listening. Person, time, and place. See you next time.